Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I want you to imagine yourself waking up in a cube-shaped room that is entirely purple, floor to ceiling, with no obvious doors or windows. You have no idea how you got there. One minute you're going to sleep in your bed at home, the next you wake up and you're in the purple room. So you wonder about your surroundings for a second, and you're like, how could I just be in a purple cube? And then something tickles at the back of your mind. Oh yeah, those purple room kidnappings. See, about 10 years ago, it was announced that for research purposes, the Institute would once a year need to randomly select a 100 citizens and lock them in a purple room for a day. After your day in the room is finished, they let you out and they give you all the ice cream you can eat. So it's annoying. It's an inconvenience. Your plans for the day get superseded, but nothing too big to worry about. Then again, something else tickles your mind. Oh, yeah, the purple room killer. This is an infamous at-large serial killer who, once every five years, kidnaps one person and locks them in a purple room before murdering them. So, given that all you know is you're in a purple room and you don't know how you got there, should you worry? From inside, there's no way to tell whether the purple room you're in corresponds to one scenario or the other. So how do you know if you're just going to be inconvenienced for a day or if your life is in danger? Yeah, is this going to end in ice cream or is this going to end in bloody murder? <laughs> and not bloody murder, the flavor of ice cream that has become popular with the kids, actual murder. Wait, I can't tell if you're kidding. Is that a real flavor of ice cream? Um, it, it is now. I'm envisioning oh, it. Can't, okay. you, can't you see it? It's. I'm thinking it's like a vanilla or maybe a coconut a with intense red. Ben and uh, Jerry's flavor. It. Yeah, yeah, it's got like cherries and it's got what some bits of red velvet cake in it. Yeah, kids go wild for the taste of bloody murder. Also just got some human bones in it for some reason. Oh, that's nougat. That's nougat. Oh, okay. you know, it freezes. It's a little tough. <laughs> uh, well, so if you were actually in a scenario like this, far-fetched as it is, you could figure out whether you need to worry or not by doing some simple statistics, and I've made it pretty obvious which side is more likely. Every year, a 100 people wake up in purple rooms as institute research subjects, but they're going to be fine. That means every five years, 500 people are in this position. Meanwhile, every five years, only one person wakes up in the clutches of the evil Purple Room Killer. Fact is, more people who wake up in Purple Rooms are going to be institute research subjects who are going to be fined than are going to be Purple Room Killer victims. So barring other information that would change the probabilities, the logic here is solid and you should probably relax. You are much, much more likely to be one of the people who's going to be okay. So why would we start with such a bizarre, far-fetched scenario? Well, today we're going to be referring to quite similar logic <laughs> to explain why some philosophers and physicists have argued that at any given moment, though you do exist in a sense, it is overwhelmingly likely that I don't exist and Robert doesn't exist, and you don't have a body, and you don't have a past, and there is no planet Earth, and all you actually are is a brain floating in space that is momentarily hallucinating sense experience and the memory of your entire life, and within a couple of seconds, you're going to be destroyed by the vacuum of the cosmos. In case you 
couldn't realize already. Uh, this is going to be a thought experiment episode. <laughs> We're going to be talking about but uh, a few on, different thought experiments. Based on real science. Yeah, yeah. The best ones uh, generally are. Yeah. Uh, so, in other words, this episode is going to tackle a much-requested subject. We've gotten several emails asking for it. Today, we're going to be talking about Boltzmann brains. Yeah, and I think this is a good topic to finally get around to because it's one that uh, I, th- I think people have been recommending it for years and years. Yeah. And I'll occasionally pull it up and I'll I'll sort of look at the basics and I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm in the mood for the, this this week. You know, it it seems like maybe it'll be a little heavy, uh, but. Here we here we are in the studio about to dissect these space brains for everybody. Now, you're probably, if you're not familiar with the argument, thinking like, how on earth could you say it's more likely that I'm a brain floating in space than that I'm a person with an actual life living on a rocky planet? We'll get there. We're going to take you along step by step. Yeah, and, and ultimately the <laughs> the idea here is not that you should question your personal existence or that you should consider, like seriously consider the possibility that you are a brain floating floating in space, but it forces us to reconsider what we know and what we think we know about reality. Yeah, about physics and cosmology. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, some people would argue that you should consider you're a brain floating well, yes, in space, yes. but uh, we're probably not going to make that case today, but we'll see. We'll see where it takes us. So there are multiple ways of arguing that it's overwhelmingly likely that all that stuff is true. You don't – your body doesn't exist. Planet Earth doesn't exist. You're just a brain floating in space, hallucinating whatever you think's going on right now. And I'll start with a pretty simple way of arguing this. Probably the simplest one, it's the infinite universe full of space brains. Now, Robert, we've talked before on the podcast about the idea of the ultimate fate of the universe, right? Based on current evidence, we can't know for sure how the universe will look given X time into the future. But we can have a pretty good idea based on current evidence. And there are definitely types of scenarios that are within the range of uh, possibilities given the evidence of today and of the past. Some look more likely than others. For example, uh, one of the things that's often floated as a possibility is the idea of the big rip, which predicts that the dark energy in the universe, the, the cosmic ener- the cosmic expansion energy mm-hmm. will ultimately increase in density and it will accelerate the rate of expansion of the universe and ultimately rip apart and disintegrate all matter. There is also the models like the the big bounce that predicts a kind of cyclical version of the universe, that the universe will expand and then reach a certain point and then start to contract again back down to a singularity. Yeah, this is kind of like the, the fluctuating creation to discru- destruction of the universe that that actually closely mirrors uh, the model that presented in, uh, in in Hinduism. Yeah. Where there's creation and the destruction, creation and world destruction just going on forever and ever. And there actually is more than one way in modeling the cosmos to get multiple universes happening over and over again in a cycle. And we'll be exploring one of those ways today, not so much the big bounce, but a different one. But I think the ultimate fate of the universe that the majority of physicists think is most consistent with the evidence we have today is the lambda cold dark matter universe. Basically, the idea that the universe just continues steadily expanding and cooling, heading out toward total entropy until stars use up their fuel and burn out. And then for a long time, there's just a universe full of black holes and dust floating in space. And then even the black holes disappear over trillions of years due to Hawking radiation. And eventually the 
universe tends toward total equilibrium, a kind of uniform, random sea of cold, useless energy that lasts for infinite time. If you've ever been trapped in a waiting room, say, with a group <laughs> of people and the conversation just gets gets increasingly mundane, increasingly boring until just utter awkward silence sets in, that's kind of what's happening here. Like the universe just gets more and more boring until it just reaches this absolute level of infinite boredom. Right. And this is almost sort of like a, a perfect consequence of the idea of entropy in general, right? The second law of thermodynamics states that within a closed system, entropy will always increase over time. Or maybe more precisely, I think physicists would rather say that entropy in a closed system will not spontaneously decrease. And there are a lot of ways of paraphrasing this to explain what it means in the point of, you know, things we understand in an everyday way. One of them is that within a closed system, so imagine just a closed box where mm -hmm. nothing on the outside is interacting with the inside. Within a closed system, order will over time tend to disorder. Organized things tend to become disorganized. Eggs crack and break and run all over the place and decompose and lose their shape and their chemical energy and sort of tend to turn into ambient heat. Yeah, things fall apart, as, uh, as Yates would, would put it. Uh, and and to, to go back to my loose analogy of the, the individual stuck together in, within an, in an increasingly boring conversation, uh -huh. it's like you have, you have six people and they're running out of things to talk about. They better hope somebody funny looking walks by that will give them something new to talk <laughs> right. about, right? Or something will pop up on the, uh, the television set that's playing in the waiting room and provide some new nugget of conversation for them to tear into. That would be like somebody putting a new egg in the box. It's yeah. like introducing some new piece of structure to a system that is tending toward total equilibrium. Yeah, a, re a refreshing of the air or water inside of a closed terrarium. Yeah. Another way this is often understood is that within a closed system, useful energy, meaning energy that can be used to do work, will over time become useless energy that cannot be used to do work. So over time, chemical energy and kinetic energy and so forth will decompose into ambient heat. And this process cannot be reversed. You can't take a room of a constant temperature and do something useful with that temperature unless maybe you expose it to an equal uh, to another area that has a different temperature. Yeah, I'm reminded in this, too, of uh, various post-apocalyptic movies, right, where nobody can manufacture certain goods or things or products anymore. And so they're just steadily used up. And yeah. then the things they were made of are used up as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and energy can be like that. Useful energy turns into useless energy. Mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe the simplest, best way to explain what entropy really means is that over time in a closed system, like in a closed box, things tend toward equilibrium. These things I've mentioned before, order, useful work, they're all characterized by structures of difference or specialness. So if you've got a closed box and you've got, say, a robot walking around in it, okay. that's very far from equilibrium because most of the box is empty space with air in it. And then one part of the box has a lot of energy potential organized into some matter and a robot that uh, has a power source and all that. But then over time, the robot will sort of tend toward evening out with the other stuff in there. The battery will run out. It'll stop moving. It'll radiate heat into the room. 
closed systems over short or long periods of time tend toward random uniformity or what's known as high entropy. When you hear the phrase high entropy, you can just think of like sameness, a sort of of sea of equilibrium where there's nothing special or interesting. A house of robots where all the robots are broken. (laughs) Yeah. And this is going to bring us to the physicist Ludwig Boltzmann. So Boltzmann was an Austrian physicist who lived from 1844 to 1906. And Boltzmann's greatest contribution to modern physics was what's come to be known as statistical mechanics and the kinetic theory of gases. And this is a theory that explains the behavior and states of gases by thinking of them as a collection of individual particles. The statistical model of the random movements of the many in this cloud can be thought of as equivalent to sort of the properties of the whole, like the thermal energy of the whole. And so he he has a way of looking at a cloud of gas and saying, actually, what we're seeing when a cloud of gas behaves a certain way is the statistical average of all the tiny particles in that cloud of gas all acting at the same time. And one of his key insights was that high entropy states, remember those things where there's just equilibrium, there's just sameness and a lack of specialness or a lack of order. High entropy states are characterized by apparent randomness and uniformity and that closed systems tend toward these states because, and this is the key part, they're statistically more likely. This might be a little abstract and and, uh, might take a minute, but we will try to use some illustrations to make sense of this. High entropy states are statistically more likely, and that's why the universe evolves toward them from low entropy states. So as an illustration, imagine you've got a clear plastic aquarium inside which is a pure vacuum. There's no matter or gas or anything inside this clear aquarium at all. And let's say you pump some yellow gas into the aquarium through a nozzle on one side. What do you expect to see, Robert? Hmm. Well, there's, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind would be watching the gas flow into the space. Right. But I, I realize that my expectations there are based on sort of uh, observations of fluid mechanics. So I'm mm-hmm. expecting more of a floral uh, bloom than may be possible. No, no, no. You, I think you're right. Yeah. You would you would see the bloom. You would okay. see first the, the yellow gas is going to be clumped up where the nozzle is mm-hmm. and it will spread out from the nozzle and it will sort of bloom out in the floral way, like you're saying, into the space. But over time, let's say you watch this happen for a few minutes and the nozzle gets shut off. What would you expect to see a few minutes later? Well, everything's going to dissipate and it's going to sort of fill the space uh, in, in, in an equal way. So it'll just maybe be like a, what, a slight yellowish uh, tint to the to the, the vacuum. Right. It will disperse mm-hmm. in order to completely and uniformly fill the aquarium containing it. And according to Boltzmann, the reason this happens is because if you expect the particles of gas to manifest continuous random motion, think about that, continuous random motion for every single particle in that cloud, mm-hmm. there are many, many more ways for continuous random motion to make these particles appear to uniformly fill the aquarium than there are ways for continuous random motion to make those particles do any other particular special thing, like clumping together in a sphere at the center of the tank, right? Random motion of the particles could make the particles clump together 
in a sphere in the middle of the tank. But that is overwhelmingly the minority of the ways that these particles could randomly arrange themselves, right? Yes. So all these other formations are possible, but we know that the, the just the, 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 the the even distribution of particles is the most likely. Right. It's going to be so overwhelmingly likely that you, that's all you're ever going to see. Mm-hmm. Randomness overwhelmingly favors uniform distributions. Random distributions always favor equilibrium. And I want to use another image to try to drive this point home. Okay. Think about a black and white image of 10,000 pixels square in which every pixel is randomly filled within uh, with either a black pixel or a white pixel. And let's say you have a computer program that generates these random pixel fields. So every time you run the computer program, it puts out a JPEG that's 10,000 pixels square in which every pixel space is randomly filled in either black or white. And let's say you run that program 100 times. What are your 100 images going to look like? I would say most of them are just going to be nonsense. Most of them are just going to be dots. Yeah, they're, the overwhelming probability is that they will all look exactly the same to mm-hmm. you. They will be uniform gray static. Yeah. What's the probability that this computer program is going to turn out an image that draws a picture of B. Arthur juggling chainsaws? <laughs> uh, I would say very slim. Right. Extremely slim. It's possible that it could draw that Mm because there's enough space that a person could draw something like that in there. But the probability of that happening is so low that it's never, ever going to happen in our lifetimes. You could run the program a billion times and you would never draw that picture. I mean, this is basically the the monkeys pounding on typewriter to to produce the works of William Shakespeare. Exactly right. But here's the kicker. Let's say you run this program infinity times. Ah. What would it generate then? First of all, we know like you couldn't actually do this, right? Because there would be physical limitations on running a computer program infinity times. The computer would eventually break down as the universe tends toward its ultimate fate. Whatever energy source is powering it would probably run out. Well, let's just say for the sake of argument, you could run this program an infinite number of times. Well, in that case, not only would it generate a picture of B. Arthur juggling chainsaws, it would draw an infinite number of those pictures and an infinite number of variations on them. You'd also get Scooby-Doo juggling chainsaws. You'd also get B. Arthur juggling butterball turkeys. You'd also get the American flag. You'd also get uh, weird variations on the American flag that just have like a bunch of clowns drawn on it. You'd get every possible picture you could get an infinite number of times. Yeah, and in this, we're really back in the Library of Babel that we've discussed in the show before. The idea, this thought experiment of uh, an infinite collection of books, not only all books that exist, but all possible books, most of which are nonsense. Right. So we're establishing that given infinite time to try variations, even though randomly assorted configurations of things will almost always turn up you know, uniform randomness that looks like nothing to us, given infinite time, they will inevitably and infinitely turn up things that are ordered and look special and look interesting and look like pictures we recognize. So what happens when we map this back onto not a computer program drawing pictures, but to, say, particles in a gas cloud? We'll address that when we come back from this break. All right, we're back. So we've 
we've essentially set the stage for order to emerge from chaos. Right. Kind of spontaneously over vast periods of time, just based on pure probability. Right. Order tends to never emerge from chaos because we don't have enough time to let that happen. Mm -hmm. But if you've got infinite time to play with, then not only could order come from chaos, it inevitably will. There's no preventing it from happening, and it will happen an infinite number of times. Now, let's go back to the the gas particles we were talking about earlier. I described this scenario where there is an aquarium where you pump some yellow gas into it. Mm -hmm. You just watch this cloud disperse. Once the cloud fills the aquarium, it's just going to sit there equally dispersed in the aquarium forever, and it's never going to change. For all reasonable scenarios, this is never going to decrease in entropy and organize itself into something orderly. No matter how many times you run the pixel randomizing program in your lifetime, you're never going to see anything other than a random field of gray. But what if you were able to study the yellow gas in the aquarium for infinity time? Well, then the same principle would hold true, right? According to Boltzmann's discoveries, you can describe the behavior of the particles in a gas cloud by constant random motion, continuous random activity. And so that means that randomness over time would organize the gas cloud if given infinity tries to perform local decreases in entropy. So over infinite time, there will be moments when the random motion of gas particles in the in the cloud will coalesce into a yellow sphere in the middle of the aquarium and then into a yellow cube on one side of the aquarium and will cause them to write short reviews of Adam Sandler movies in the gas on the side of the aquarium and every possible arrangement for which there are enough particles. Not only that, but again, given infinite time, the gas will arrange itself this way an infinite number of times. Now, here's the real brilliancy move of Boltzmann. Extrapolate this to the entire universe. Are you with me, Robert? Yes. Yeah, we're, we're going to take the same idea of order occasionally emerging out of chaos, and we're going to apply it to this universe of ours, which uh, in, in which we see uh, order emerge out of chaos. I want to refer to a graph that I got from uh, Sean Carroll's website. Sean Carroll is a Caltech physicist who we'll be referring to several times in this episode because he's dealt extensively with the idea of Boltzmann brains. And so he asks you to, to go along with Boltzmann's idea of a universe like this to imagine a graph where on the x-axis you've got time. So as you go along the bottom of the graph, x-axis time develops. Mm -hmm. And then on the y-axis you have entropy. So the higher up you go on the graph, the more everything is this sea of sameness with nothing special or ordered or interesting or useful. And then as you go down toward the bottom of the graph, you get order, you get complexity, you get useful work. Mm-hmm. On Boltzmann's view, the baseline, sort of the ground state of this universe, what the universe is almost all of the time is maximum entropy. So imagine the graph has a line at the very top just going straight across along the x-axis, but at the top of the graph, total maximum entropy, thermal equilibrium. Nothing interesting at all happens in this universe. It's this vast sea of cold, undifferentiated sameness. But if you follow this line along the x-axis of time through history, Every now and then, the line will randomly dip down some distance from the top because this is due to random fluctuations, right? Mm -hmm. A random fluctuation will produce a lower entropy state, which will then regress back toward the maximum entropy. So you're, so you're imagining a line going across the top of the graph and every now and then dipping and then coming back to the top. Most dips are very small, but some are bigger. 
And the bigger the dip, the rarer it is. But if you let the, if you follow the x-axis forever, for infinity time, eventually one of those dips will inevitably go all the way down to the bottom of the graph, a state of maximally low entropy, which in functional terms would be like a rebooting of the local entropy of the universe, giving us tons of order, tons of specialness, tons of useful energy. It would be a big bang. Ah, sort of like boom periods in in complex systems emerging and coming together. Right. So what Boltzmann is trying to show is that using his idea of entropy fluctuations just randomly occurring through infinite time, you could, in a maximum entropy universe, suddenly spontaneously generate a Big Bang, which would essentially start the universe over. It would create a universe with what appears to be an arrow of time. Now, we're almost getting to the brains. <laughs> Though the arrow of time is no small matter either. No, like, This no, is no. a way of, of explaining why we have causality in the universe, right? Right. So there, there are going to be problems with Boltzmann's model, but this is what he, he's trying to imagine is that, yeah, so we've got causality in the universe. We've got entropy. We've got the arrow of time. The universe seems to develop from one direction to another. Entropy doesn't go backwards usually. Mm -hmm. So why does it look like that? Well, maybe it looks like that because we are on one side of this dip in the line on the graph, right? Mm -hmm. We've fluctuated into a state of maximally low entropy, and now we're on our way back to the ground state of high entropy. If this is true, if this actually were how the universe was shaped and this is how the history of Big Bangs developed – one implication would be that though our universe will eventually cool and dissipate and tend toward total disorder, there will be an infinite number of other future universes fluctuating randomly out of equilibrium in the future, which is maybe kind of comforting, right? You can imagine if this line on the top of the graph just keeps going on, even though our universe may one day die a heat death, it may one day just go to thermal equilibrium, it'll fluctuate back into existence again. All right. Well, there's there's hope in that in a very like distant cosmic sense. Yeah. But there is a super creepy, dark implication if this is the case. And this is where it be it turns back in on ourselves and becomes less this this remote uh, physics thought experiment kind of thing. and becomes a personal thought experiment right. one based on our perceptions, our individual perceptions of reality. Exactly. A high-entropy universe full of dispersed matter and energy tending toward equilibrium and lasting forever. You're in that state. That's your ground state. Mm -hmm. If this were to happen, you would have infinite time for random fluctuations within the universe to depart from equilibrium and form not just Big Bangs, but all kinds of ordered systems. So you might occasionally get Big Bangs, but actually much more frequently, you'd get smaller fluctuations creating smaller objects – so you'd have a mostly uniform, random universe with the extremely rare fluctuation into existence of a fish with wings and of a steel ball bearing and of a glass of lemonade and even a human brain, complete with memories and ongoing sensory hallucinations. And you're saying, wait a minute, that sounds far-fetched. You're right. It is far-fetched. This would never happen, not in a billion, billion years, unless... You had infinite time. And then if you had infinite time or uh, or a functionally infinite amount of time, not only would it happen, it's guaranteed to. And it would happen an infinite number of times. Oh, that's the power of infinity, though. Right? Yeah. It, it opens up the possibility for, for virtually everything to, to, to occur. 
So because on some models of the universe, these brains would be infinite in number, they would outnumber normal brains produced on a cooling planet by evolution. And thus, the argument, you are statistically more likely to be a temporary random brain fluctuating into existence in deep space time than you are to be one of these normal biological brains produced by evolution on a rocky planet. The fluctuating brains over the course of the entire universe's history are more numerous. Thus, you're more likely to be one of them than you are to be one of us. All right. Well, I'm with you. I know this can be a difficult thing to sort of wrap one's head around. Uh, I also have to say that as we were reading over the material, I found myself hearing the uh, the descriptions in my head uh, read in uh, in the form of the galaxy song from Monty Python <laughs> uh, that people might remember from the, the meaning of life. Yeah, how's it go? Uh, you know, uh, so remember when you're feeling very small and insecure, how amazingly unlikely is your birth? You know, like that. I, I'm I'm singing the wrong part with the wrong tune, but you you get the idea. Yeah. It's all about the you know the size of the universe and how insignificant humans are uh, when you when you try and factor us into the whole grand design. Well, I mean that can be a comforting thought sometimes. Yeah, and 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 also a terrifying one. You're just yeah. like, wow, I'm 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 nothing. Uh, I, I I had the same situation um, I, just recently on my trip to uh, Kauai with my family. Mm-hmm. We uh, we we got to see the canyon there in Kauai, which is beautiful. It's uh, it, far grander than one might expect visiting an, an island out in the middle of the Pacific. But I get the same same impression that I get gazing out at something like the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. There's all this space, all this emptiness, and it's just it's just overwhelming. It's so vast, and you just feel so small and insignificant. And then it's no wonder that small children don't see what the big deal is because they they can hardly conceive of, of life and death, and therefore the idea of just a vast yawning emptiness is just kind of boring to them. Once you try to conceptualize infinity, it really does change your perspective on everything. Yeah. Uh, because infinity is an inconceivable concept. Yeah. And when I'm talking about a, a canyon, I'm not, you know, I'm certainly not talking about infinity. I'm talking about a finite amount of space, but it's a, a, an amount of space that is far greater than uh, what I have sort of baked into my usual worldview. Well, it hints toward infinity. It for does. You, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. To see something much vaster than yourself and then realize it is also vanishingly insignificant in in the face of the universe. Yeah. And the, and, and the whole area of infinity, we actually have uh, an episode or two from the the back catalog on the nature of infinity and infinities, talking about the, the whole thought experiment of the infinity hotel. Mm-hmm. What happens if you have a, a hotel with an infinite number of rooms and then a busload of, of infinite guests show up and then a second bus shows up, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these thought experiments about infinity tend to indicate that there's something wrong with your starting assumptions. Mm -hmm. And that may be actually where we're going with the Boltzmann brains here. Uh, Hopefully that's what we are. Otherwise, you're going to have to accept that you are statistically a Boltzmann brain and not a biological organism evolved (laughs) on a rocky planet. So you you might be asking a question like you – I know I for a while didn't understand, wait a minute. Why does this this model of the universe predict more Boltzmann brains than regular observers – In an infinite universe, wouldn't there be an infinite number of both, right? You get an infinite number of Big Bangs creating rocky planets with evolution, giving rise to infinite uh, 
normal biological observers, then you'd also have infinite Boltzmann brains floating in space, yeah, fluctuating why, out of nothing. Why would space brains, which we have no proof that they exist, why would they have privileged status over actual organic brains, which unless everything is an illusion and yeah. we're actually space brains, uh, you know, unless that is the case, we have definite proof that they exist. If you go back to our random pixel field program, remember we were discussing earlier uh, the computer program that randomly creates images by randomly filling in one pixel at a time, black or white, in a big field. If you give that program infinite time, how often will it draw a smiley face on a grid of pixels that's 100 by 100? And then, given infinite time, how often will it draw a smiley face on a grid of pixels that's a million by a million pixels? Both occurrences are extremely rare in real time, and both will happen an infinite number of times given an infinite number of tries. But the 100 by 100 smiley face will nevertheless happen much more often than the million by 1 million smiley face because it it requires a smaller number of coincidences. Here's one for you. Uh, Hopefully uh, this is not going too far uh, uh, off the point. But imagine... Connor McLeod from the Highlander <laughs> films lives forever, an okay. infinite number, an infinite number of years, infinite number of days. Uh, so that means when you think, how many times is he going to use the restroom versus how many times is he going to cut off somebody's head? Right. All right. Now, not factoring in the idea that there's going to be a finite number of immortals, et cetera. Yeah. Just know that those are two things that Connor McCloud does if you watch these films if or, he, and presume yeah. that he has normal uh, biological functions. He's going to use the bathroom and he's going to cut off heads. But the frequency uh, at which he goes to the bathroom is going to be greater than the frequency at which he cuts off heads. Unless, he, unless he's like a really prolific head cutter offer. Maybe, but I'm still I'm still going with the assumption that he's going to urinate more than he decapitates. Okay. In, in if given an infinite lifespan, he is going to cut off infinite heads and he's going to take infinite leaks and infinite poops. But <laughs> the poops and the leaks are, are going to be greater infinities than the heads. This has been gorgeous. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so let's extrapolate that to the universe again. There's an infinite universe full of stuff in equilibrium, and there are entropy fluctuations. And those entropy fluctuations can create things. They can create uh, – and let's say I want to use an entropy fluctuation like that to create regular human observers through evolution just like us. First, I need to get a universe-sized amount of matter and energy randomly into one place. So it will form a new Big Bang and create lots of useful energy, stars, galaxies, which in turn create planets, some of them habitable, on which some uh, – or on some of which intelligent life will evolve and observe the universe. Again, on this model, that can happen. Random entropy fluctuations are going to eventually produce Big Bangs. But because that requires so much more of the content of the universe to randomly fluctuate into an ordered state, it will happen far less often than random fluctuations turning into smaller objects like a fish with wings or like a brain. So it's actually more likely and thus more common for a brain to spontaneously appear in space than for a Big Bang to spontaneously coalesce. So what are we talking about when we're talking about brains in in these thought experiments? That's a good question because what we're really talking about is observers, right? Mm -hmm. You're just trying to account for the fact that you are able to be here saying, wait a minute, what kind of universe am I in, right? Anything that could say, wait a minute, what kind of universe am I in, 
counts as an observer. So it technically wouldn't really need to be a biological brain made out of all these weird fatty cells and neurons like our brains are made out of. Uh, the objects produced by fluctuation that, that you supposedly probably are don't have to be brains like this. Brains are just chosen because they're physical objects that we know from experience can produce the effect of a conscious observer. But technically, unless I'm missing something, what the Boltzmann brain logic should actually predict is that brains in the universe are going to be outnumbered by structurally the most structurally simple objects containing the smallest number of atoms or the smallest amount of energy that are still capable of producing conscious observation. And these objects will even outnumber the Boltzmann brains that outnumber the normal biologically evolved humans and other aliens. So in all this we're not merely talking, say, like a self-aware nebula or a living planet, but it could also be something like a conscious speck of dust. Right. That's contingent on whether or not it's possible for a speck mm -hmm. of dust to be conscious. We don't know. We we don't know what the minimum physical conditions for conscious observers are. Of course, fluctuations resulting in specks of dust uh, of any possible sort will vastly outnumber fluctuations resulting in brains or computers or conscious watermelons or conscious horses in space or whatever. <laughs> There will be an infinite number of all of them, but there's probably going to be more specks of dust than there will be those other things. Of course, a great takeaway from this is if this universe is actually the one we live in, if there actually is an infinite universe or a functionally infinite amount of time in the universe, then all mythological beasts imagined and unimagined will at some point exist. Oh, well, there's a, a silver lining there, I guess. <laughs> it depends on whose imaginative uh, world uh, you're uh, attaching yourself to. You know, if you're diving into a bunch of Lovecraft and H.R. Geeker, I don't know how, how beautiful that ultimately is. But uh, but hey, it means there's there's a planet of oryx out there somewhere in the uh, the, the vast infinite sea of, uh, of being. God bless the entropy fluctuations. <laughs> That's just great. Now, I guess uh, I guess we've got to get to the big question, which is that. We've now outlined this thought experiment, but does it mean that we have to be convinced by it? Are we doomed to accept that we are statistically, in fact, Boltzmann brains? I want to assure you, some very smart physicists argue no, you don't have to accept that that's the case, even though it does seem statistically more likely, because there might be problems with the assumption going into this thought experiment. And we're going to explore that later in the episode. All right, we're going to take a quick break but we'll be right back. All right, we're back with more brains. Now, these uh, types of thought experiments about like what an observer can know, just starting from the point of knowing you exist and, and being aware of your own consciousness, th this is not originated with the Boltzmann brain problem, right? Th this goes like way back into history. I know uh, Descartes did stuff like this. Yeah, uh, René Descartes uh, lived uh, 1596 through 1650. Uh, he incidentally he died at age fifty three, the same as Terence McKenna. Oh yeah, we were just recording another episode where we yeah. talked about McKenna today. Some, some synchronicity, some synchron yeah, coincidence. He, there. he would have relished that. <laughs> now, if, uh, if if we were to sum up the work of Rene Descartes in a, a single sentence, it is of course. I think, therefore, I am. That's what he's most famous for, right? Yeah, Descartes was a big fan of using logic and reason as opposed to using your senses. Right. Uh, and uh, he was a dualist. He saw the mind and body as separate. The essence of uh, mind is thought and body is an extension of it. Thoughts are not extended into space, but the body is. Mm -hmm. He also proposed a thought experiment that is sort of a forefather to these uh, weirdo space brains we're discussing here. Right. The evil demon. Right. 
So he presented this in his work, Meditations on First Philosophy, colon, in which the existence of God and the immortality of the soul are demonstrated. Yep. That's one heck of a title. That's from 1641. Well, a lot of times people forget this, that like what he's remembered for, I think, therefore I am, but that's for him part of a proof of God's existence. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the case with a number of the different ideas that he trots out, right? I mean, they can be, they can kind of be taken up by either side. Yeah. So when he's talking about the evil demon here, it's essentially an exercise in Cartesian skepticism. He presents the idea that everything that you think you observe could, in fact, be an illusion inflicted upon you by an evil demon. As far as you know. Yeah. I mean, another example he brings up in this is mistaking dream for waking experience. So in other words, our perceptions and sensations, they can deceive us. Mm -hmm. It falls to each of us to be able to distinguish between true and false beliefs. Not to truly outwit a demon or escape from a you know particularly um, potent dream, but to navigate a reality full of fallible data and ideas. And it's, it's so. In other words, it's important to remain skeptical uh, in one's world. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a thing we don't usually think about all that much from day to day, but it is a philosophically interesting foundational question, which is. How much stock do you put in the evidence of your senses? Yeah. If you just deny the evidence of your senses, you're locked into a pretty ridiculous place and you can't really live a life, right? But if you say the it's impossible for the evidence of my senses to be wrong, then you're opening up yourself to the possibility of like, okay, uh, if you're experiencing a hallucination, you're not going to be able to be convinced that the thing you're seeing is in fact erroneous data. Yeah, yeah. The first hallucination that you experience, the first false memory that you encountered would be a, a potentially life-wrecking uh, occurrence. Yeah. Now, there's a there's a modern variant of all this, uh, and this was first presented by uh, Hilary Putnam in Reason, Truth, and History in 1981. It is the brain in a vat argument. Good old brain in a vat. Yeah. And, you know, we we touched on versions of this. I believe uh, there was a science fiction story that we uh, discussed by Daniel Dennett. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The one where his brain gets taken out of his body. Yes. Yeah. I think and, this story is called Where Am I? Yes. Yeah. And it, uh, it he had a nice, robust sci-fi setting uh uh, that, that went along with this. And it's rather nice. Uh, yeah. I, I recommend reading it. But, uh, and, and that was basically the scenario. These scenarios usually involve a brain that's been removed from your body and hooked up to a computer that deceives you with the experience of being a living, embodied being. But in Putnam's version, it's very stripped down. There are no evil demons. There are no evil supercomputers. There's no mad scientists. All you oh, have. That's a bummer. Yeah. Well, it's, it's stripped down for a reason. Right. Because when you start adding in all those details, you start, you start tweaking it and asking questions. Well, how mad was the scientist? You <laughs> right. know, you, you want it as stripped down as possible to make it more plausible. Right. Yeah. And, and you all also it'll become more obvious why it's so stripped down. But basically all you have, you have brains. You have vats, and you have a laboratory supercomputer that stimulates the brains. Anything else would just be a complicating plot element. Okay, so what does Putnam think about this? Okay, so, well, there's what he thinks and what the the skeptic would argue. So, simply put, the skeptic would argue that we cannot know if the brain in a vat hypothesis is false. Okay. And if it's true, there's no difference in our perception of reality. Therefore, we actually don't know any propositions about the external world because these propositions would be false if the VAT hypothesis is true. So the simple version goes like this. If you know X, and X can be anything, um, 
give me an example. What's a what's a, a truth you you take for granted? Uh, water, when heated sufficiently, turns into steam. Okay. If if you know that uh, heated water turns into steam, and I mean really know it, then you know that you are not a brain in a vat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But here's the thing. The second point is you do not know that you are not a brain in a vat. You cannot prove this. And so the third point is you do not know that heated water turns into steam. I must say I'm quite skeptical of the brain in a vat argument. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I respect I respect the thoughtfulness of it. There is a certain logic at work here. But one thing we should be aware of is that the brain in a vat argument is not necessarily a parsimonious starting point. Like the, imagining yourself as a brain in a vat could potentially be an extravagant scenario that's rather ad hoc. Yeah, yeah. And it's also worth noting that there are varying levels of complexity on these these simple formulas. Because, for instance, uh, Putnam's counterargument was that, yes, we can know that we're not a brain in a vat, and we can do it via basic semantic considerations of re- on reference and truth. Oh, what would that look like? All right, so the simple version, and this is the simple version, again, you can get increasingly complicated with it. But first of all, if I'm just a brain in a vat, then my, then the, then my word tree doesn't refer to trees, okay? Because okay. I'm just this, this... Because I've never actually seen a tree. Yeah, because remember that, that very stripped-down description of the world? I didn't say anything about trees. All I said, brain, vat, supercomputer. Okay. So, okay, so if I'm just a brain in a vat, then my word tree doesn't refer to trees at all. But, consideration number two, my word tree does refer to a tree. Therefore, I am not a brain in a vat. Okay. And again, it gets more complicated from there. There are increasingly more complex ruminations on that concerning the semantic truth of the of of this whole tree thing. Wait a minute. I'm, so, how does he justify that his word "tree" does refer to a tree? Because what's what's it referring to if it's not? Okay. It's like I say, <laughs> I'm not saying that it's just a oh yeah yeah it's a simple sort of a, a nod and go along with the situation. Like he gets very it's very it's uh, very yeah. very deep rather fast. But uh, yeah, it, it it comes down to sort of like the internal logic of well, essentially your brain, yeah, uh, and, and your reasoning. Um, and he's saying you can sort of you can argue your way out of that paper sack. Well, you could say that semantics, in a way, necessitate externality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, the the fact that we have this this robust uh, uh semantic system to call upon. Now, uh, of course we run into various versions of this, right? Various echoes of this uh, in other thought experiments such as say the the computer the computer simulation argument of oh, yeah. reality. Yeah, the simulation argument often gets brought up when the Boltzmann brain argument gets brought up because there are definite similarities between them. Right. And then we see so many interesting sci-fi treatments of this. We mentioned Daniel Dennett's short story, but obviously the matrix is an example of well not necessarily a brain in a vat, but a body, a full body in a vat that it is counts as a brain is dreaming yeah. a simulated world. But of course, it's also worth noting that this whole this whole concept is is pretty ancient too. Uh, it's, you should, mean of like the external reality being an illusion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can go all the way back to the Hindu concept of Maya, which uh, which predates all of this, obviously. The concept that there's a veil of illusion cloaking the phenomenal world, and it gives rise to false apprehensions about the nature of self and of cosmos. Uh, one has to see through this veil in Hinduism to gain a full awareness of deep reality or, or, or Brahman. Are there concrete steps to how to see through it? 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of like where where the you know, the, the whole religion uh, uh, comes through, you know, and uh, the idea that there are there are practices, there are steps, there are rights, there are ways to to achieve this. Uh, there, I'm just going to read a, a quick uh, line from the Upanishads from the first millennium BCE. This whole world, the illusion maker projects out of Brahman, and in it, by illusion, the other is confined. So, you know, a, a lot of of life then comes down to like how do I how do I see out of my illusions? How do I see see through them and grasp like the true reality of the world? The irony I think here is that that is a great project. How do you see beyond your illusions? But that one of your illusions could be that your mind has been captivated by a probably false argument that your world is an illusion. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the, the risk, too, with the, the Boltzmann scenario, right? Yeah. Are we not just creating another illusion in our attempt to to grasp absolute reality? Well, yeah, I think some physicists would say definitely yes. So I think it's time to ask the question, is there any escape from the Boltzmann brain paradox? What would physicists say uh, about this paradox? Is there a way out of it? Or are you trapped by the logic of you must be statistically a brain floating in space? There are several ways to answer this question. First of all, I think we should start with something the physicist Sean Carroll points out. I mentioned him earlier. Mm -hmm. He says the Boltzmann brain paradox is, quote, cognitively unstable. And that means that while it does seem true to us based on logic and probability, it also undermines its own foundations. Because if we were just a random fluctuation of a brain full of memories and hallucinations of current sense experience, and our lives never happened, and the past never existed, and all of the premises on which the statistical argument that you are a Boltzmann brain is based would be hallucinatory and unfounded in reality – there would have been no Ludwig Boltzmann, right? There would be no guarantee that the universe is one in which the laws of physics give rise to random fluctuations. Also, you would have no confidence that you could have real problem-solving intelligence since you've never actually tested it out against the world outside. You never needed to evolve any kind of problem-solving reasoning. If you really were a Boltzmann brain, there would be absolutely no reason to think that the process of thought leading you to believe yourself to be a Boltzmann brain was valid or sound. So, and I could be misinterpreting this, but is the, the idea here that there's too much... Uh internal consistency in the illusion for it to for our lives and our existence to truly be an illusion of this uh, Boltzmann brain? Well, it's that the argument for the fact that you're a Boltzmann brain is based on premises that mm -hmm. you have obtained through the history of scientific research. And like the only reason for you to think you're a Boltzmann brain is because the past did exist and we've done science and you can use logic and all that. If if none of that was actually true and maybe the universe doesn't have random entropy fluctuations and all that, then how would you know you're a Boltzmann brain? Essentially, one would be using Maya to arrive at Brahman, which is the you'd reverse be, of the proposition. Yeah, you'd be using something that is necessarily an illusion mm -hmm. in order to discover the fact that you are an illusion. OK, yeah, that makes sense. So it's cognitively unstable. It undermines the very evidence and logic that allowed us to arrive at the conclusion of the Boltzmann brain paradox. 
All right. Well, that works for me. I'm going to write that on a postcard and put it in my pocket uh, and pull that out the next time I'm, I'm terrified of the brains. Now, I think the way Carol uses this is not that it necessarily disproves the Boltzmann brain hypothesis, but that it should make us suspicious of it, though we still have to deal with the idea that the universe looks like it might generate Boltzmann brains from a physical point of view. You oh, need yeah. to do something about that evidence. Yeah, we so. still have to deal with the physics. Right. So there's another possible answer. The number of Boltzmann brain observers in a universe relative to the number of normal observers in a universe is determined by what kind of universe you're in. And we don't know exactly what kind of universe we're in. We have some ideas, but there may be ways in which our picture of the universe isn't quite right. Because some universes do not generate more Boltzmann brains than regular biological brains. So it seems reasonable to think that we are likely living in one of those types of universes that creates more biological brains than Boltzmann brains and maybe doesn't create any Boltzmann brains at all. So what do those universes look like? Well, I'd say there are two main ways of approaching this. There might be more, but there are two main ways I've come across. First of all, what if the universe has a different history and ultimate fate? I would call these uh, states collectively infinity denial. Okay. If you live in a state of infinity denial, there are not infinite or functionally infinite amounts of time in which Boltzmann brains can arise, meaning they'll probably never exist at all. I mean, remember how crazily unlikely this is. You put yourself back in real headspace for a second. A brain fluctuating into existence in space – Unless there are pretty much infinite opportunities, that is never, ever going to happen. So in a universe that has a fixed beginning and end and does not have infinite time, even if it has a very vast age, right. you're just not going to see it occur. Right. Uh, well, I mean, it depends on how – on what kind of vast you're talking about. Right. Like how many orders of magnitude you go. At some point, obviously, there's not like a number infinity, but at some point, the universe does become so vast in time scale that you could generate Boltzmann brains. But that's a kind of vastness that's incomprehensible to us. But if there are these infinity denial limits on the shape of space-time and the age of the universe, then Boltzmann brains are dead in the water. And I want to use one example that Sean Carroll and Kimberly Boddy have put forward, which is in their paper, Can the Higgs boson save us from the menace of Boltzmann brains? So essentially they explore the possibility that, quote, the Higgs field will decay via bubble nucleation sometime in the future, dramatically changing the physics of our universe. So to paraphrase, the decay of the strength of the Higgs field will periodically destroy the universe and cause it to transition into a different type of vacuum with different laws of physics. Now, that wouldn't be great for us, <laughs> but that would be interesting because it would avoid the Boltzmann brain problem, right? If the physics properties of space change over time due to the weakening of the Higgs field or, or a change in the Higgs field, then you would potentially have a universe where there would not be these vast opportunities in which Boltzmann brains could arise. Okay. And again, this is another uh, another scenario that would interrupt 
essentially the flow of infinity. Exactly. And an, another way you could do this would be the other side of the coin, which would be fluctuation denial. What if the universe actually isn't able to fluctuate a brain or any other kind of conscious observer into existence, and the only way conscious observers can come into existence is by regular old biological evolution? And this comes back to the point you made about we don't know what, like, we, we don't know the, 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 the limits uh, and, and the, the minimum requirements for consciousness. Oh, yeah. About, I think we're talking about dust specks. Could a dust speck be, become conscious? We don't know. But it's also likely that the only way to arrive at consciousness is via uh, bi- biological evolution. That's the only way we know about. Right. But, I mean, there could be other ways. And so that's one thing. A weird possibility would be that what if you just like materialize brains in space, but for some reason brains like that can't become conscious? Hmm. That, that's possible. Okay. Then you would never expect to be one of those observers. Then you could say, okay, it's more likely I'm a a biological evolved organism. It's kind of hard to imagine how that would happen, like why those brains would be denied access to consciousness, but that's possible. Well, I I mean, without going down the the rabbit hole of consciousness discussions, I mean, you could make the argument for all the various species with brains on our planet that are not conscious by various definitions of consciousness. Yeah. As far as we know. Yeah. But there's another way of doing this that goes directly to the fluctuation potential of space itself. For Boltzmann brains to randomly fluctuate into existence in the universe, we need a process by which those fluctuations could occur. And so if we go back to our clear plastic aquarium, those fluctuations were explained via the apparently random motion of particles in a gas cloud in a closed system. But in the universe, we're not talking just about random motion of particles in a gas cloud. We're talking about fluctuations decreasing local entropy, which would be caused by quantum mechanical fluctuations in the vacuum energy of space-time. I know that's kind of abstract. Uh, I, I can't honestly get too deep in explaining what that means because that is that is deep cosmology and it's <laughs> way over my head. But basically the idea is that there is virtual particle potential in empty space and that it appears like empty space has the power to undergo random fluctuations which generate events and energy and temperature and stuff. And we definitely observe what appear to be vacuum fluctuations in the universe. The solution here is a different way of interpreting those fluctuations. What if they're not a property of space itself, but of some other special condition? Like, what if space is not fluctuating, then empty space cannot create a brain or anything else? And this is explored in another paper with, uh, by authors Sean Carroll and Kim Kimberly Body, also with the author Jason Pollock, called Desitter Space Without Dynamical Quantum Fluctuations. Explaining it on his blog, uh, Carol, Carol summarizes this by saying, quote, what we call quantum fluctuations aren't true dynamical events that occur in isolated quantum systems. Rather, they are a poetic way of describing the fact that when we observe such systems, the outcomes are randomly distributed rather than deterministically predictable. But when we're not looking, a system in its ground state, like an electron at its lowest energy orbital around an atomic nucleus, isn't fluctuating at all. It's just sitting there. And in de Sitter space, an empty space with a positive cosmological constant, all of the fields are in their ground states. If we were to probe empty de Sitter space with a particle detector, it would certainly detect particles – 
but there are no particle detectors around. So, in fact, the quantum fields are sitting there quietly in a stationary state with no definite particle number. Therefore, these kinds of fluctuations aren't really happening. Okay. Now, does that defeat Boltzmann brains? I feel like it it may have defeated my brain. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you have to get into the the physics to explain that. And uh, as again, I can't pretend to explain all of the ideas about mm-hmm. the quantum mechanical fluctuations of the vacuum energy of space. But essentially, Carroll and Body and Pollock here are, are arguing that if you take a certain view of what quantum mechanics means on the cosmological scale of mm-hmm. what's going on uh, with with quantum mechanics in empty space, then you actually don't have a problem of fluctuations that could bring objects into random existence if you've got an empty dead universe. So the idea here is we have a room full of typewriters and chimpanzees, but most of the chimpanzees are dead. Uh, they're all dead. They're, nothing's <laughs> typing. So, yeah, you do have an infinite room. You've mm-hmm. got an infinite room full of infinite monkeys and infinite typewriters, but none of them are typing. <laughs> okay. So that's the no fluctuations model. Essentially, Body, Carol, and Pollock are proposing an empty, cold universe of space that doesn't produce Boltzmann brains because it is not like the aquarium full of gas with its random continuous motion of particles. Instead, it's an empty universe as long as nothing becomes entangled with it and it just sits there and does absolutely Absolutely nothing, and there are no fluctuations. Now, of course, all that's dependent on their argument in the paper being correct, which I am not a physicist, I can't adjudicate, and so I don't have an opinion on that. But I do think we've been given enough to consider uh, that will at least allow me to think I, I, I don't have to be convinced by the Boltzmann brain argument. Right. Like, I, I feel like we have we have some semantic and cognitive arguments, and then we have some physics-based arguments, even if they're a bit too lofty for most human brains. So, so, so we have we have some arguments against it, and we can kind of pile those up, stack them up, slip them in our pocket, and feel a little more secure that we are we are not just some randomly. Uh, uh, hallucinating brain co- floating in the cold, uh, uh, dead uh, depths of space. I mean, if you were, how would you know it? I don't know. You might as well look on the bright side of life, right? And just right. As- assume that we're not. Enjoy your few seconds while you've got them. Yeah, yeah might as well keep dreaming. I, I mean, why would you want to wake up from that dream? I, I, but again, that's kind of the argument of... Uh, I guess it's the argument of a lot of uh, of uh, philosophy and uh, and religion, right? The idea that maybe the dream is not worth dreaming. Maybe this is a dream you want to wake up from. Maybe maybe it's not a pleasant dream anymore. Maybe the the more pleasant uh, reality would be the uh, the, the Boltzmann brain floating in in a sea of nothingness. I dissent. I dissent. <laughs> I argue that lower entropy is better. <laughs> it is just objectively better. All right. Well, hopefully our listeners out there will have some thoughts on all of this. Are you afraid of the Boltzmann brain? Do you uh, how much stock do you put in some of these arguments for it and against it? And hey, I'd also love to know just what are some of your favorite sci-fi examples of uh, of this sort of idea, this sort of brain, a brain in a vat, uh, a brain spontaneously generating uh, uh, out of nothingness in space. Best brain in a vat movie's got to be RoboCop too. Oh God, that is such a good, uh, a good one. Uh, you know why didn't they do more of a philosophical treatment of that character of Kane? <laughs> Kane wonders. Tom Noonan. Yeah, man, I, maybe that's in the um, the novelization. That would be that would be wonderful. There's a novelization of RoboCop too. I assume there has to be. Like the timing was right for there to be a novelization. Is it Alan Dean Foster? Maybe, maybe. 
But but that but you know that would be that would be so perfect if whoever did the novelization spent a whole chapter or two just 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 really biting in to the um, the existential uh, worries of Cain. What am I? Am I really a RoboCop too, or am I just uh, the brain of a psychopath inside of a RoboCop too? We've got to stop. We've got to call it there. All right. Well, if you want to interact with us, hey, head on over to any of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. Also, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the website. That's where you'll find all of the podcast episodes as well as some blog posts, links out to our various social media accounts. And, hey, if you want to help us out, if you want to support the show, uh, I can't stress this enough, uh, rate and review us wherever you have the ability to do so because that that will ultimately uh, help us uh, and empower us to put out more episodes. Thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And big thanks to Paul for stepping in as a guest producer today. I think Paul does an excellent job. So if you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>